Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, we're hopping all over the world. Firstly, we hear about how community gardens have spread across a whole region in Portugal. Then, we learn how kids are connecting with their ecosystem in South Africa by becoming plastic pirates. We're in Bulgaria, where we hear about an interesting membership model for a farm shop. And finally, back to the UK to dig into a farming approach that layers and connects many businesses on one farm. André Miguel works for the council in Cascais, Portugal, and is the project manager of Hortas de Cascais. The council have really embraced the power of community gardens as a way to improve the lives of people living there. What started as a few allotments has grown into a district-wide program where many people are managing plots of land together. They even now have a community vineyard. My name is André Miguel. I'm Portuguese and I work for, for Cascais Municipality. It's a municipality near Lisboa, near 20 kilometers away. So um, 10 years ago, we started a, a project, a urban garden project, uh, for our first uh, garden with six plots. We didn't know how to do it. We started from scratch. It was only six plots, a hose for watering and a shelter. And that's the, 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 the way we started. But since the beginning, the, the designers that designs um, landscape projects inside the municipality thought that it was very good to include in those uh, designing projects uh, gardens. We called it them hortas. So they uh, easily start to include them. And after one year, we had already three uh, gardens installed. And afterwards, uh, it started to grow. Growing because uh, um, we, we, we could fulfill the needs of all the important players in this thing. Um, because we could fulfill the needs for the gardeners. They have all the conditions they need to, to have a good garden. Uh, but, but at the same time, th these gardens are really inside the neighborhoods. So they are really uh, near the, the, the buildings and the, the home of the people. So they're starting to be uh, a meeting point for people with uh, the grandmothers and grandfathers, take the children and, and go there to show the, the lettuce, the tomato plant. And they start to be a, a place for the, the, the gardeners to chat with neighbors. Um, so the gardeners start to be a meeting point in, in the important place of the, garden, of the neighborhood. So the neighbors started to want to have gardens in, the, in uh, her neighbors. At the same time, we have, we have been lucky because we had made the lucky uh, uh, choice of selecting uh, uh, the way of assigning for the, for the, for the, the gardens, like, like an online form. So it's, it's uh, I don't know if, if uh, um, you know that uh, normally the, the gardens, you, you apply for a garden, a specific garden, you make an, an assigning list, a closed one, you have the people who had plots, you have the people uh, that are waiting, are substitutes, it's closed. But when you make an online form, it's always open. And that, that made uh, a thing that the, the, the waiting list started to grow always. 
and that's for the politician, it's, it's a pressure because they, they want to fulfill the needs for the people waiting for a plot. So we had the, all the three players, the three uh, stakeholders that are um, influenced by this, that's the, the, the gardeners, the neighbors and the politicians all in need to more gardens and orchards. So the, 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 the project grow, uh, grown very, very much. For now, we are, we are with 700 plots assigned. We don't have only orchards now, we have vineyards, community vineyards, where the, the people don't have 30 square meters, that's the, the area that uh, each plot have, but they, they have th um, some plants. Normally in vineyards, we're talking about 40, 50 plants. We give them training, we give them uh, advice, and they do the, the, the labor, they do the treatments, they, do the, the, they work the soil, they do the pruning, uh, and afterwards the, there's an harvest, and they already, uh, we already have made four harvests, and uh, the, we have already wine that is um, waiting to, to, to be um, aging. Uh, in wood barrels, and we will have uh, uh, Carcavel's wine made by the population. Then we start to, to make Orchard too, in the same systems. With this assigning list, we, we get the confidence for the politicians, from the politicians, from, from us to innovate and to, to, to start to think about the, the, the farming in Cascais. So uh, we start to, to, to managing a, a, a garden, one hectare garden inside a, a farm. It's a pick your own garden. It's, it's very well known in Cascais. The people go there to, to, to have the experience to, to collect uh, the lettuce, the tomato, etc. And we're starting to uh, work with professionals uh, of food system, with restaurants, with small supermarkets, and trying to open new ways to open the, the field for other people to come and sell because they're starting to feel the needs to these kinds of products. Products that are local, they are organic, they are re regenerative for now. So there's, there's a, a big need for this kind of products. So afterwards, we started a, a, a garden inside the prison with uh, the work labor uh, by the inmates, with our management, but they do the work uh, for donation purposes to people in need. So it's, it's more a movement. It's not only a project, it's the movement of starting and promoting urban agriculture in, in Cascais. About vineyards, we have two projects running at the same time. At the same time, we have the community vineyards, and uh, since to, to 2018, we, we started, uh, the, the municipality bought uh, a land in, in, in Cascais. It, it's, it's one of the parish of Cascais, is Carcavelos. And in Carcavelos, you can find the smallest wine region in Portugal. Uh, it's a wine region with a lot of history. It's uh, used to, to rivalize with, with Oporto wine, to being exported to UK and uh, um, it's a, a wine with a long history, but with urban, with urban pressure, it went, went almost extinct. So the municipality is trying to make a work to, re, uh, I don't know what to say, but to, to, to make it um, start to grow from the scratch. So in, in that work, we work with community vineyards, and at the same time, we have a, a, um, 
a, fa a land that, that the municipality bought. It's more or less five hectares, but we uh, installed 2.7 hectares of a vineyard with the, the right varieties, white, white varieties, because it's a, a mostly white variety zone because it's near the sea. So it's very good for white wine. And um, we planted it 2000 and uh, no, we take it off in, in 2008 and 19. Uh, uh, we uh, planted it in 2020. No, it's one year uh, before. So we, we planted in 2019, we grafted in 2020. In the um, in early March of 2020, in the beginning of the pandemic crisis, uh, and in 2000, 2021, we made the first harvest, and uh, um, last September we made our second harvest, and it's really working with regenerative techniques, with uh, mulching, with uh, cover crops, with knowing exactly what kinds of nutrients the plant needed at a, um, a 15 day basis. Having 15 days, I make an analysis and I know really what the plant needs. So I help the plant to get those nutrients to the soil or to, to foliar applications. So with regenerative practices, and yes, the, 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 the people from Cascais are starting to uh, um, be involved with this kind of agriculture. And even the mayor already knows that what is regenerative agriculture and is, is one of the supporters of the thing. I think uh, um, it's important for this kind of products that they, they would not um, be or stop like only projects, but being movements of citizenships because uh, um, our gardens, uh, um, they are not uh, uh, a project of uh, uh, lettuce, uh, lettuce growing or tomato plants, or they are a project of people, always about people. And we know all the names of all our gardeners or the population that, that gardens those plots. So it's very important that this is a, a thing that goes bottom up, that people will really feel that's their, their own project and they, they nourish to grow. The other lucky choice that we had, that we decided not to have high fences. So we have fences like one meter, and that makes that the, the neighborhoods and the people around, even if they don't have a plot to, to garden, they can look, they can, at some time, they can uh, use uh, sightseeing, go there and see the work of the others. So, so they feel inside the, the, the plot. So it was another lucky, lucky choice that we had, but it made the difference. All of us have to be much more, um, or consider much more the, the, the work with the customers, dire directly with the customers. Me as a customer, I think we need more contact with the farmers and that the farming must not be excluded from the city, far away where nobody sees what they are doing, but it must be joined with the city. And it's very important that the cities produce part of the, the, the food that they, they need. And I think market gardening techniques uh, and the market gardening movement will be the answer that we all were hoping for, and it's the answer, because 
I came from from a farmer's school, so I was taught that we need big lands, we need to be competitive, we need smaller plots don't don't matter because you cannot sell, you cannot, and that's not the truth. It's it, there's a right scale that you can be yourself, contact there, the, directly with clients, produce food inside the city, and and uh, help climate change. Philippi Village, in the township of Philippi, Cape Town, is housed in an old cement factory. I visited a few weeks ago and was humbled by the place. It's a place of extremes. We walked past armed guards through a mammoth ex-industrial building and then into an eight-acre open area that houses a football pitch swarmed by children. And then nestled in the corner, you'll find Amaquanda Learning Garden, where local people from the township, together with the team at Philippi Village, produce food and are doing great work to improve the health of the soil. There are chickens to produce eggs and a lot of chard. <laughs> we spoke with one of their collaborators, Yanga Gesea of Captain Van Plastic. I saw firsthand how he kept multitudes of kids entertained and thinking about their role in our ecosystem as they explored their relationship to plastic. My name is Yanga, and I turn ordinary children into positive pirates for the environment. <laughs> By that I mean um, Captain Fan Plastics is an environmental literacy program that teaches children a no trash but treasure mindset in a way that we want to change the way they interact with plastic over their lifetime by making sure that they kind of like embody a different relationship than the previous generation has had with plastic, where we look at the value and the impact of plastic overall over their lifetime. The concept of a pirate is something that's world-renowned, funny enough, um, and every child everywhere loves adventure. So take that into account, the love for pirates, the love for adventure, as well as a tradition that has lived on many generations, oral storytelling. All of us has grown up with some kind of stories told to us or we heard or told to other people. So harnessing the power of storytelling, we kind of like take this program and bring it to children with the power of our voices, where we tell them stories of how the ocean and us are kind of like interacting or connected in a way, along with the plastic consumption that we, we have. So if you look at like how all of those things come together, you kind of then have um, a way that you can sort of change someone's mindset because you immerse them through the power of storytelling. I do actually have a beautiful analogy of really how this impact of this program has been since its inception five years ago in 2018. Um, so uh, we, were, we were doing a school in a township in Cape Town called Kukuletu. And one of the school visits was to the grade four classes. And through that, we teach them obviously how to R like a, a proper pirate. And with that, that stands for the Pirates Five R's. So the refuse, reuse, repurpose, reuse, recycle. Oh my gosh, I've just butchered the order now. So we taught the children how to do this R. And so I'd come back to the school to, to sort of like do another session or organize another session with the grade five classes. And this little girl, as I'm walking in the squad, in my peripheral, I see this little girl walking. And at the time, I don't have my eye patch on, I don't have my captain's hat on. 
I'm just in my casual clothes. And then she tugs my blazer, booty, booty, pulling my blazer. I look at her and she goes, ah, with her eye on her face and my heart melted. Right there and there, I truly believe in this program that these five R's are really going to change a generation of people. Um, so yeah, that's really the impact of, of this program so far. Philippi Village and Captain Van Plastic meet at a very beautiful place. I call it a tryst that's made to happen because if you look at our program, it has pre predominantly existed as a school program or as a primary school program for grade fours and grade fives um, because it aligns with their curriculum so well. Um, but then an aspect of it that we've explored through the years is having a community intervention where, where children kind of like take care of their natural environment or the immediate environment, then trying to create a connection with places that are very far away from them. Like if you talk about the great garbage patch to a child that is something that's so far removed. But if you talk about picking up litter and immediate action and empowering them for today, then that kind of like triggers them to do action for today or it empowers them or inspires them to do that. And I think Philippi Village really embodies an opportunity to empower children to see themselves as heroes in their communities. And through like the community garden or learning garden, they're able to create those connections of picking up litter and then also putting stuff in the ground so that you may eat, so that you may benefit. So you're creating this human that's kind of like an environmental custodian, but also really embodies what it means to be interconnected with the environment or being in harmony with, with nature. That's how I see it. For me, in my little corner, I find so much joy in really planting the seed in young children to be able to be empowered because at the end, I'm 30 years old and I'm sure like in the next 30 years old, um, yeah, I'll be at the end of my life because that's the life expectancy of someone these days. So what are we doing to make sure that the future is really secure um, and that they have a fair chance of survival? At this rate, I feel like we're not doing enough. I feel like our politicians are not doing enough. I feel like corporates are not doing enough. There's so much money and profit. And what it is, is just the capitalist greed that's having us by the chokehold and creating this culture of consumption, consumption, consumption. So I think we need to break the chain of consumption with plastic and material possessions in general, and really talk about things that matter for for the rest of our lives, for the rest of humanity. Yeah, and ultimately, I think our main goal um, that we set for ourselves, our audacious goal, is to reach 175,000 learners worldwide um, by 2025. And we are well now away because in the next six months, in the next six to 12 months, we'll be rolling out this, pro this program in eight Indian Ocean islands. So from Madagascar to Cabo Verde, to Maldives, to Seychelles, um, and many other ones in, in between. And that's through the partnerships that we've been able to, to make. And we are also open, that's why I'm saying that, because I want it to be an open call to anyone to reach out to us. And we create impact because the power of storytelling um, and empowering children to be their guardians of their own future is the way to go. Philip Hermanziev is the owner of Levadi Farm, a polycultural farm in Bulgaria where animals are raised on pastures. 
He shared with us a membership model he's been using for a number of years for his online farm shop. It enables a more equitable model for access to the nourishing food that he is producing. My name is Filip Harmanjev. Uh, my farm is uh, in Bulgaria, in southwest Bulgaria, between the very close to the Greek border. And I raise pastured animals, chicken, cattle, and, and pigs. And we produce uh, products out of them. Basically, my concept is when you open the fridge to see only me. I have a limited number of pastured chickens that I can produce according to the law. Every beginning of the year, I enlist dates and numbers of chickens that, they, that my client can reserve. And once those chickens are subscribed, I close the doors of the club and I call the, the people that reserved chickens club members. They pay a voluntarily, a voluntarily set fee for the, for the membership. And, um, and they have the, the dates and the reserved chickens to come to the shop and, 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 and buy it. And this is going for 12 years. And, you know, uh, so the, because it's a permission marketing, it's a marketing at the end of the day, uh, although I hate this world, or, uh, the word of mouth is that someone has to die in order to be able to join the club, which is totally untrue because we, we run the the lottery every year. So every year the club opens the doors and, uh, and people can subscribe. But uh, just the image is such that everyone wants to be in. And so it's a, it's a nice viral uh, permission marketing. I explain this membership fee also as a, uh, um, like a regulator of my prices. So if people consider my prices high, they would then they would uh, pay a, a low fee and uh, you know the prices are always relative to your income so if you cannot if you're on the bridge of your income uh, abilities then you're not supposed to pay high fee but if you think that my prices are you know low compared to your abilities to pay then you you please pay more so that to reflect your your abilities and then people really look at through this lens and the, the richer people pay more than the, than the normal. And I, I hate, um, you know, I don't think the food should not be uh, accessible as, as in terms of prices. So I don't want to be very aggressive in prices. And this is, this is a tool to, to have a little bit bigger pre premium from the people that can afford to, so it's, yeah. Tim May of King's Clear Estates has been working to build and run multiple businesses with a series of collaborators all on the same land. And in doing so, he's sharing the risks and rewards of being part of the estate. They are currently running their pitch-up competition for the second year in a row which invites people to pitch business ideas to make further use of the resources available to them on this estate. I'd done a scholarship program, Nuffield Scholarship, and I'd looked at uh, what the future of our farming was going to be and realised that it needed to be much more nature-based, much more um, sort of that productivity was going to 
come from um, more diversity, from having more enterprises stacked on top of each other. And um, I started off by trying to do it all on my own. Fairly quickly, I ended up in, in counselling and uh, going through a bit of a, yeah, I suppose an, an emotional sort of, almost a, like a mini breakdown, not a, not a complete breakdown, but uh, yeah. And um, and that really spurred me on to start this, uh, the share farming sort of model that I'd seen on my travels, but uh, and was in the back of my head to I must get that working. But that really made that made that happen. That was the the true catalyst um, for that. So yeah. So essentially, what we wanted to do is have a um, a system of enterprise stacking where one enterprise goes through the the landscape and is followed by another enterprise and another enterprise and another enterprise. So everything's instead of using the land for one use, it's being used for multi uses. So an example that I often cite would be our dairy cows running through the, the pasture and then being followed by um, a chicken, a, a flock of um, egg-laying chickens. So those two enterprises are following and they have this sort of symbiotic relationship where uh, the chickens scratch away at the dung and the um, that exposes the sunlight, the, the dung to sunlight, but the, the chickens are scratching away to get the, the bugs that are in the dung and that's their protein source. So that works like that. And then we get, you know, the, the chickens also need extra food. So they have the grains that are brought in, which then is more more dung into the pastures, which creates more food. So that's the sort of symbiotic relationship we're, we're trying to create. The challenge to that is obviously uh, getting the right people involved and one of the, the things I was pretty aware was that these systems um, being so new and diverse, you, they weren't really suited to your normal sort of manager-managee sort of employee-employer relationship. They, they needed much more grey matter, much more sort of that entrepreneurial spirit and that sort of uh, dynamism that, that, that you get from an entrepreneur. So we, we really needed to set up something that was, that was going to attract uh, that, that, that kind of a person. That's where this idea of share farming came in, where we kind of um, we put two businesses together to sort of to run in, uh, in cohesion, so independent, of, interdependent of each other. So, what we do with the dairy, for example, is uh, Ollie puts in his his management time, and I put in my land, and then we share all the inputs and share the capital, like the the the, um, the cows and that sort of stuff. And we both, at the end of the day, we look at the, look at that as a whole business. Say, right, we. We both put this stuff into the business, um, but we put it in in these shares, and then that that is how we then share the output, you know, the, the milk price at the end of it. The challenges are, I suppose, you, you, you kind of got to be a, prepared to say enough's enough, and you know, like because you're, you're so well, me anyway, I'm so excited by it working and by the idea working, but sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes you know the relationship's not right, or the person isn't as. Uh, entrepreneurially minded as you'd hope or, or you know or just their life moves on and you know people go different ways or the system doesn't work so um I think we've got to be prepared to say enough's enough and one of the things that I suppose I, I hark back to there's like um a business cycle it's like a one of those bell curves and you can start off with like the uh, innovation and development and then you go into this massive growth phase get to maturity and then dwindle off at the end and I think that every idea every you know, business, all these, they, they all go through that, that curve. Um, and even, you know, the, the most impressive businesses that we've got going on at the moment, they're going to go through that curve and they're going to end. And I think it's sort of being realistic about that scenario and realizing that things are going to end and just, uh, I suppose, putting in, making sure the exit strategy is there at the beginning so we all can, can leave amicably. We're not used to thinking about death as 
as a society really yeah we, we don't think about the end but it's kind of actually thinking more about death and being you know or, or the end of a cycle the end of a, a period and being prepared to move on i think that's a really important thing the main businesses are, are raw material production really that's that's what we're we're into at the moment which is what we'd like to expand away from so we've got um we've got the dairy which is a mobile milking parlor um 450 cows uh, and they move um they want milk once a day they move all the way around the estate so they can they've got access to all the land and that means that we can have mixed land use you know across the whole farm which is um, really beneficial and um, then we've got our egg laying chickens which we run also rotationally moving them around and both of those um have been a real eye-opener into the power of mobile infrastructure being able to have you know not being not having enterprises fixed to a single piece of land and then you get like the 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 radiation of benefit or negativity coming from that pool because it's mobile you can move it all around and it gives the owners much more autonomy because if they you know the owners of those businesses if they fall out with me they can pick their farm up and go somewhere else and so they've all got that that thing which is really really sweet We've, we then have um, a whole load of business units that we rent out to various other people. Um, one of those units is, um, goes into a, a, an undertaker. So she, she's, she has the bodies. And then um, we've then set up a green burial site for her. So that's um, <laughs> quite a cool one. But what I really like there, the idea is so when people are buried, um, we plant a tree on their plot each year. So that would be a hazel tree. And then what I'd love to get to in the future is those hazel trees then become coffins for the future people. So you know, we start to weave them into coffins and, and get that sort of cycle going. So I ran a competition last year looking for new people to come and join us. The people that kind of won that process were called Munch and they're uh, Daisy and Dan. They are um, foragers. So they go around the farm and forage leaves and um, twigs and branches and all sorts of plants and they dry them naturally. And then they box them up, and it's for rabbit food. So they're um, they, they're foraging for for their the pet rabbit industry. So um, that's really exciting, seeing how that goes. We really realised that there's an abundance of opportunity within our on a, on the estate. We we we've gone we've had this mindset mindset shift from like this reductionist sort of very linear, very sort of you know trying to cut the costs out of everything, trying to you know see less um in our business to the one where we can just every time i'm wandering around the farm i just see another opportunity another opportunity and this whole abundance and i realized the only way i can really um realize any of that abundance is to let other people come in and you know see their own abundance but and 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 work and try and work in a collaborative way that helps to build the whole you know thing that is kingston estates together so so what we've done is we've run a um this uh, I suppose a call to action called pitch up um, and we want people to pitch their ideas to us and those ideas would generally be ones that um, would fit would sort of integrate in within the business so um, in in the future we'd like to see the raw materials that we produce on the farm converted into something on the farm and those byproducts from that conversion process cycle back into farm um, and then sold within you know, on the farm as well and then the fact that that selling process, bringing more people into the farm to buy more products and just sort of getting this on this huge upcycle of sort of regeneration. Um, so that, that's kind of what we're what we're trying to do. And that's where pitch ups come from. So the opportunities, I suppose, we've got at the moment, we've got you know, woodlands full of material that could be 
coppice or could be turned into charcoal. We've got uh, heritage grains and all sorts of other grains that could be turned in milled and turned to, to flour or baked. We've got obviously uh, the, the foraging opportunities that could be used for salads instead or could be used for botanicals or could be used for, for um, perfume making. You know, that, that basically anything land-based... <laughs> is is an opportunity and anything that the, the ones that really really attract or get us uh open our eyes are ones that sort of say right we've got this idea that's going to use this process and it kind of mixes into the farm already it doesn't so sometimes i get people that want to come and do market gardening and but their, their vision of a market garden is one that is sort of like a, a square of ground that is fixed on the land and does the bit it doesn't end up integrating into the whole business. Whereas, you know, I can see opportunities where we can be like more, more gorilla in our nature, like gorilla gardening, going just in, and find the opportunities within within the whole estate. And and so, like where we're growing turnips, for example, you know, we've already got a really good crop of turnips. So a, a gorilla gardener would just go out and and pick the very best of those turnips out of the hundred acre field of turnips, and they might only need to be growing. I don't know, a tenth of an acre's worth of turnips if they were in their market garden. But in this scenario, they can go and pick just the very best and sell those as turnips and not really have to have a tenth of an acre set aside just for their turnips, for example. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Abby Rose, and Joe Barrett. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Olivia Oldham, Katie Revel, Dora Taylor, Fern Bailey, Annie Landless, and Eliza Jenkins. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We're very grateful to those of you that support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama. <laughs>